Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 6. Last time we were together in Genesis 5, we were considering a man of godliness and righteousness whose name was Enoch, a man who walked with God, who bore this testimony that he pleased God. And we also discovered last time through Enoch's prophecy in Jude, Jude quotes that prophecy uh, of Enoch and and credits it to Enoch, in fact, um, that in his days things were perhaps not well. Uh, We had some speculation as it related to why it was that Jude would give such a, a prophecy, but recognizing that that prophecy is quoted in Jude in relation to uh, the deceits and the darkness of false teachers, those uh, who claimed false things. We thus recognize that within Enoch's days, and certainly uh, by the time of Noah's days, men were evil. So evil, in fact, that Enoch's prophetic utterance was a promise of judgment upon the ungodly. Ironically, it was not a promise of the judgment that Noah would experience. Uh, That promise was not given until what we find here in Genesis chapter 6, but rather a promise of that which we read about in the revelation of Jesus Christ. A promise of of Messiah's eventual coming with ten thousands of his saints uh, to get rid of, to, to, to put an end to ungodliness. This week we step into Genesis 6 and we'll realize that any hints through the scripture of man's wickedness are only the tip of the iceberg as it relates to the condition of the men in those days. And today we are going to begin that study together and I'm going to um, do things a little differently. Uh, I'm going to put the cart before the horse uh, a little bit here. My, my, my typical or the characteristic way that I go about doing this uh, when, when there are controversies in a passage is I'll preach simply the content of the passage and then I'll spend several weeks working through the controversies. We just had something like that happen um, in 1 John 2, right? 1 John 2, 2, where I preached the passage. Then I preached a couple of messages on 1 John 2, 2, talking through various elements of its importance and distinction. However, I'm going to do things in the opposite way today. And and one of the reasons why is um, because whenever I've interacted with people, not necessarily the people of the church, but people about this passage of Scripture, there are very strong feelings about this passage, so much so that when I've tried to interact with people on it, um, it almost seems like people's minds are a little bit blocked into what they've heard or what they believe about this to the extent that they're not able to get beyond it to actually kind of dig into what the text is saying. So I am going to begin with the controversies today. And if you've never heard of the controversies surrounding Genesis chapter 6 and and, and the nature of Genesis 6, uh, I am going to spend a good deal of time today telling you what that controversy is, and then telling you why I believe what I believe about it, and why I believe what I believe the Bible is saying about it, and my hope, and it's actually going to take two weeks, my hope will be that through it we will peel back this error in such a way that then we can actually refocus on, on what the text is saying, and we can get past some of these things. And as I said, it's going to take two weeks, and that for a particular reason. This week I'm going to talk about the practical and the theological. The reasons why, from a practical standpoint, I don't agree with what I have, at least up here in this area, what I have run into as a, a, the, one of the more common interpretations of this passage. And so we'll talk practically today, and then when I bring the application for today, it's going to be a, a, a more practical application rooted in the nature of how we interpret the Word of God. 
and, and, the, and, and how we approach understanding the Word of God to guard ourselves against various uh, tendencies and, and inclinations unto error. And then next week, I'm going to talk, and one of the reasons why I'm actually bringing up the controversy is because I believe that the controversy surrounding Genesis 6 actually has dramatic spiritual implications. Implications that most people don't think about. They're kind of the subtle, subconscious, behind-the-scenes ones. But if we carry the interpretation of Genesis 6 in the wrong way, I think it throws a tremendous amount of um, uh, uh, obscurity or it obscures or it, it taints the entire point of the flood narrative, which is one of the seminal points of history. It is one of the climaxes, it is one of, those, one of those high points, not in a good way, but one of those high points of human history. It is a very consequential point in human history, and I believe that that consequential point is tainted by a wrong interpretation of the events of Genesis chapter 6. So I do believe it's important. Again, today won't be the real important stuff. Today will be more technical. Next week we'll hit the spiritual import. And then the week after that we'll actually talk about the passage and, and what I believe the passage is drawing us to, toward, pointing us toward, as it relates to um, Noah and toward the flood. Okay, so let's dig into the passage together. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. So we step into the narrative following the genealogy of Genesis chapter 6 with the phrase, and it came to pass. Now, in that we finished the genealogy in the days of Noah, it, is, it would be expected as a general rule that we are picking up in the days of Noah, that the and it came to pass, uh, and I believe this will be confirmed, of course, in verse 8, but that this and it came to pass, our narrative is rooted primarily in the days of Noah. Recall that when we last left Noah in this genealogy, verse 32 of chapter 5, he was 500 years old and he had three sons born unto him, their names Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But as it relates directly to verses 1 and 2, it cannot necessarily be said with confidence when these things came to pass, when along the, 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 the tra train of events. We know that it was at least 120 years before the flood. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But um, the safest conclusion would be that it was within Noah's days that these things were really coming to pass. And the description is of men multiplying upon the face of the earth. This would not surprise us. No one is dying. When no one is dying, people are multiplying, right? Uh, that, that, that's to be expected. One can imagine that the kind of population gains that would occur over 10 generations when no one dies uh, would be pretty dramatic. And of course, we don't know exactly how how long, how, how, how long of a season of that life people were having children. Uh, how many children was each one having? The Bible does not tell us. They, they talk, tell us about, in, in the genealogy of, in chapter 5, it, it tells us about the one consequential son, the one who would continue the line, right, unto Noah. And then it says, and then they lived this many years having sons and daughters. So we don't know how many, how many children they would have or, or, or how that population growth would disseminate, but... Humans were multiplying upon the earth. Um, so the Bible tells us the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, 
and took them as wives. And this is where the first of our controversies arise. We're introduced to several actors here. Men who multiplied. They had daughters. And then the sons of God. So we have the men, the daughters of these men, and then the sons of God. Let's lay a bit of foundation for the interpretive conflict. What is clear from this text is that there's a contrast. There's a distinction being made. There are two groups of people. There are the the sons of God and there are the daughters of men. And one of the important strategies that a good interpreter uses when he approaches a phrase or a word in question in the Bible is to find other times that that word or that phrase is used in order to gain some bearings, find some clarity as to how it's being used. And in the Old Testament, if we were to take this concept of sons of God and we were to search it, we were to trace it, we would actually trace it to only one other book of the Bible. And only three other uses. That book is the book of Job. And in those three uses, the phrase sons of God each time speaks of angelic beings. So we read in Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. Then in Job chapter 2 verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And then Job 38 verse 7 as uh, as, uh, God is speaking he's talking about when the earth was created and he says at that time the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. So these are the only other references we have directly to this idea of sons of God in the Old Testament. And this would naturally lend us to wonder as to whether or not Genesis 6 is speaking of angelic beings. If that is the case, if we assume that to be true, then things get very interesting, don't they? Because what the text would be telling us then is that these sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took unto them these daughters of men as wives. And then if we assume that as we continue, then things get even more interesting in verses 3 and 4. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So the Bible says in verse 3 that whatever was happening here, we can step aside from that for a minute. And again, we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks, the actual content of the text. Whatever was happening here, the men uh, multiplying, bearing daughters, the sons of God, taking these daughters of men, marrying them, and then having children with them, whatever's happening there, the Bible says that God was interacting with men and that his spirit was striving with men. And so much so his spirit was striving with men that it, it, uh, it says here, he is also flesh, yet his days shall be at 120 years. What we find here, what this is, this idea that the spirit of God was striving with man and he declares that his days shall be 120 years. Some believe this means that God uh, has pronounced that now he's, he's going to limit man's lives to 120 years. And they draw on the fact that several of the early patriarchs after the flood lived only about 120 years old. It does not seem as though that's what, what God is saying here, uh, though. Much to the contrary, what it 
appears that God is saying is that because his spirit has been striving with man and man has been so rebellious that God has declared at this point in the text in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 that in 120 years he is going to judge the earth. And so at this point we recognize that there's 120 years left before God brings the judgment of the flood upon the earth so that his spirit will cease striving with men. Now, we'll come back to that later, it's not, uh, 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 as I said, in, in a couple of weeks. But, <clears throat> excuse me. But as it relates to this idea of the sons of God and the daughters of men, of course, verse 4 speaks to this relationship. And the first thing that the text tells us is that there were giants in the earth in those days. And then it says, and also after that, also after what? Well, we could say also after the giants being in the earth in those days, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Also after that, after this pronouncement is what I believe this means of the 120 years. So God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. He will have another 120 years. There were giants in that days, in those days. And after that, after this pronouncement, after this has gone out, has gone forth, that man knows that God has declared this. These sons of God who had taken wives of the daughters of men had children with them and became mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, if we interpret these sons of God to be angelic beings, then we find that these sons of God procreated with the daughters of men and their offspring became what the Bible describes as mighty men of old and men of renown. Let's talk about the interpretation of the facts then as, as it relates to this, if these are angelic beings. The common interpretation, if these are angelic beings, is that demonic entities, not, not God's angels per se, but, but, but the fallen angels, the rebellious angels, came down to earth, procreated with women, and created a unique, we'll, I'll call it a unique race of men, uh, human demon or human angel hybrids who were in a sense gods among men but were wicked abominations of God's design and intent. Within this interpretive framework they take the idea that there were giants in the earth in those days and they connect those giants though the text doesn't necessarily do so they connect the, the concept of those giants to those men of renown that were born out of this demonic human hybrid situation and thus creating what people call today a race of Nephilim. Now, the reason why they call them the Nephilim, this is simply the Hebrew word found here, which means giant. So they say that these were the Nephilim and they describe them as a demonic horde, a, demon, a, a, a human demonic hybrid, um, men with demonic capacities, with spiritual capacities, perhaps uh, superhuman strength, these sorts of things. And that these men were uh, a part of the, were, were the, the essential essence of why things were so bad. It's because these men were violent and wicked and seeking to dominate the earth. Also within this framework of interpretation, this becomes the actual fundamental pretext for the flood. That Noah was unique in the earth in that he was not tainted with hybrid DNA. And so he was delivered by the, uh, by the ark with his family and the rest of the, the human race had been tainted and so were destroyed. Now, the evidence for this hybrid theory, often called the Nephilim theory, is very interesting and in a way compelling. 
First, you have the biblical evidences. So we've talked through where, where they take this as it relates to Genesis chapter 6. Naturally, as we've already talked about that, the evidence of the sons of God. The only other time this is used in the Old Testament, it is used to speak of angelic beings. So that lends a pretty good reason to believe that, well, probably the Bible's talking about the same thing here. But then we also have some New Testament references. And those New Testament references uh, are, are used to give a, a fair bit of credibility to this theory. And I want to take you through those today as well and help you understand how, uh, how they relate to this theory. And then, and then of course, we'll talk about um, perhaps why they may not. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, the Bible says this. And by the way, I do not subscribe to the Nephilim theory. So as we're working through this, I am going to tell you why I do not believe this is true. We're going in that direction. But I, I'm giving you all of this, first off, so that those who, who are compelled unto the theory um, are understanding that I understand it and that I, I know where you're coming from, and thus there's hopefully credibility for the, for, for the arguments otherwise, as well for those of you that have not heard it before, if you interact with people on this passage, at some point you're going to hear it. And, um, and, and it, it's, it's actually very prominent right now. I'm going to show you that next week. Um, I just had, I just ran across this again just the other day in another group that I, I'm, I'm interacting with. And so I'll, I'll, I'll show you about that. Um, that'll be next week. So bear with me here. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So this first passage tells us that Jesus went and he preached to the spirits in prison. We believe that Jesus would have done this during the three days, right, where he was in the grave, where he had died and he was buried, but he had not yet risen. And he went and he led captivity captive and he preached good, um, uh, good news unto men. And so we have this idea that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. And Peter connects these spirits in prison to the time when uh, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah that, that in that time of disobedience that, that the spirits were imprisoned because of that time of disobedience. And so we see this connection here. Thus connecting, in the Nephilim theory, they connect these spirits in prison either to the fallen angels who impregnated these women or to the hybrid creations themselves that were an abomination, and so they were put into this place of, of holding, right? It's called prison, um, but it would simply be the idea of a place of holding or containment. So they, they, they look at this passage, they say that the spirits that were in prison when they were disobedient in the days of Noah, and they say, okay, well, that, that comports, right? They're spirits, they were disobedient. That disobedience could certainly be that they went and they interacted with uh, uh, the daughters of men. They, they took them as wives. They had children with them. They procreated with them. And so that's how they interpret that. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is the next one. Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious, meaning destructive ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved to judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then uh, it continues, though we will not. So verses four through five tell us that there were angels Peter is speaking here and he says that there were angels that sinned and that God cast them down into hell, delivering them into chains of darkness. This is often used to prove, they, they connect this to 1 Peter and they say, see the spirits in prison from 1 Peter 3.20 who were rebels disobedient in Noah's day must be the, the, the angels that sinned and were cast into hell of 2 Peter and reserved unto judgment. And then verse 5, of course, goes on to talk about Noah. Then, if we were to continue to verse 6, it would talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. So that we can see almost a, uh, maybe a, a, a sequential idea of uh, before Noah at some point, then Noah, then Sodom and Gomorrah, leading us to a sort of chronological summary of rebellions that God had judged in the early days of history. So we have an idea here that there was a set of angels that sinned. Well, Second Peter and Jude are sister passages, and they speak of the same things. We were just in Jude, right, for the book of Enoch. We read it, but let's read it again. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, this is Jude 6, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jude describes angels who did not keep their first estate, but left their own habitation and now are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness to the judgment of the day. Okay, so there are spirits in prison, First Peter says, and there are spirits, uh, there are angels that were cast down into hell, Second Peter says, and then Jude says that there are angels who are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. Now this interpreter will take the idea of spirits in prison from the days of Noah and determine them to be the angels which sinned and left their first estate in Second Peter and Jude. And if this is the case, then the leaving of their first estate happened within the 120 years prior to the flood. And if the leaving of their first estate happened within the 120 years prior to the flood, then it makes most sense to connect what the angels were doing to this idea of the sons of God procreating with the, um, with the daughters of men. And within this interpretation then, this is proof the procreative union was the thing which God punished in that day, that the angels who overstepped their boundaries and proceeded uh, with human women to procreate were punished by being chained in the bottomless pit until the day of judgment. And this is perhaps supported again by the next verse, which reads in verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the potential here then, and what they'll say is in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah represented God's judgment upon the people because they were Sodomites, right? Uh, because they went after strange flesh, so too the uh, procreative union between angels and humans created a strange flesh situation, an abomination to God that then must be judged. And so God judged them in the same way he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's where the Nephilim theory would draw that link and say, that's what's going on here. So this is what we have in the Bible. 
All of it is actually quite vague. I don't know if I did a good job. I don't know if anyone's like, well, Pastor, you've really convinced me of this now. I don't know if I was convincing or not as I gave you all of that, but it actually is quite vague. Um, and we'll talk about why. It doesn't sound vague if you put it in the right terms, but it is quite vague. But that's what you have in the Bible. But then there are external evidences. And this is really where this theory gains its momentum. Jewish tradition teaches this theory. So it's not just that, that, that you have the, the, these things in the Bible, but if you go to the Jewish writings on the commentaries on the Old Testament, they teach this theory. Of course, most Jews, even Orthodox Jews, believe it's all metaphorical. But they teach this, that the angels of God procreated with human females, begat sons who, in the words of Josephus, were unjust and despisers of all that is good. And so in Jewish lore, in Jewish mythology, in Jewish history, they interpret these words to paint this distinction between man and particularly chosen man and then these, these satanically tainted abominations. And then we have Greek mythology. And you say, well, there's mythology, right? And we recognize that all throughout the world there are, are flood myths. If you go into any number of cultures, you'll find that they have myths of a worldwide cataclysm, a flood. And you say, well, of course there are worldwide myths because it actually happened. And because it actually happened, myths are going to pop up all around the world surrounding this thing. Well, when we think of this idea of these God-man hybrid abominations, does that sound... Familiar, for those of you that are familiar in any way, shape, or form with Roman and Greek mythology. Well, there are two groups of beings uh, that mythology speaks to in this sort of a way. The first being the Titans. The Titans were pre-Olympian god-like beings. They were kind of the initial gods. They were the Titans. And then they were overthrown by the new pantheon of gods, Zeus and, and, and such. And they were put in chains in this place called Tartarus. Tartarus is the word that the Bible uses for the bottomless pit. It, it's that word. And so we see this convergence of Greek mythology and a biblical word, because the Bible's written in Greek, and that's the word that would describe this thing, right? And we see this convergence to where they say, well, yes, see, even Greek mythology confirm, confirms this thing that the Bible seems to indicate. Second, we, of course, have the God-man hybrids. Hercules, Achilles, half man, half God, right? And so we have these hybrids, of course, within Greek mythology. They were typically heroes of men. They were not, but, but then you would say, biblically speaking, well, yeah, of course, what the Bible calls evil, pagan mythology is going to call good, right? And so then they take these, these um, anecdotal ideas of, of Greek mythology and of Jewish tradition, and they say, well, these things seem to... Um, agree with this sort of idea that, that Genesis is espousing. And this is, in a sense, when you put it all together, there's something quite compelling to this, which is why many Christians and Bible teachers have taken these things and they've said this is, this is what happened in those days. But as I've said, I do not believe this to be the case. And while it's certainly not an issue on a surface level, it's certainly not an issue that's worth splitting the church over or having family disagreements over or anything of the sort. I do believe that if we follow that track, normally I'd say, look, it doesn't matter, and I'm going to tell you why it doesn't matter from a practical standpoint, and it's all well and good. But if you do grab a hold of this idea, we'll talk about this next week, it does threaten something very fundamental about 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that next time. So let's talk about my concerns. And again, to this week, I'm going to give you the more technical concerns that I have with this, the actual biblical words, the, those sorts of things. And then next time, we'll talk about the doctrinal or spiritual concerns, the heart of what I believe the text is trying to teach and how it is threatened by this theory. So to this point in the Genesis narrative, we have been tracing one primary and preeminent theme, this conflict of kingdoms. God creating man in fellowship with him, Satan countering God's claims and promises with claims and promises of his own, God giving man dominion over the created world and giving him a choice because God did not just want man to serve him, God wanted man to love him. So man is given this choice. Man chooses to accept Satan's claims above God's claims. Man falls out of fellowship with God and God in his mercy uh, temporarily restores this relationship by the shedding of blood and then promises that there's coming a day where he will send one, the seed of the woman, to undo what was done in Adam. That is the great theme. It is a redemptive theme. It is a theme of light and of darkness. It is a theme of God seeking to redeem man and Satan seeking to hold man in his sin. It is a theme of God seeking to bring about righteousness. And it is a theme of man following after unrighteousness out of the perversion of his own heart. And the reason why that is so important, the perversion of his own heart, is because when Jesus comes to the cross, he comes to the cross to fix a heart Problem. He comes to the cross to fix a sin problem. He doesn't come to the cross to fix a DNA problem. And this, this I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. But we trace this through Cain and Abel. And Cain shows a dedication to the promise of humanism, to the promises of the things of this life. And so he kills Abel. And that was the seed through whom God was supposed to bring Messiah. But then Seth whose name means substitute, is given to replace Cain as the seed. From here we see the divergence, and it becomes quite dramatic, right? We trace Cain all the way to Lamech, and uh, it climaxes with Lamech, whose sons are, are great innovators, and through this innovation, Lamech is going to be, be, bring violence to the earth. And then on the other side, we have Seth's line, and we trace Seth's line, continuing, continuing in the legacy of those who called upon the name of the Lord in, in, in the, 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 the days of Seth's son Enos, Right? And this climaxes with Enoch, who walked with God and was not because the Lord took him, as we talked about last week. So the theme of the Bible, as it has been presented to, so far, the theme of Genesis is one of heart and will, of one side of man exercising their will against God and the other side of man exercising his will for God. So with this baseline, let's talk about a few technical elements. First, the idea that the sons of God procreating with the daughters of men means angels procreating with men. Well, we mentioned quite specifically that there is no precedent in the Old Testament for the idea that, uh, that the sons of God means anything other than angelic beings. And it is a good interpretive practice to allow that to be your first stop. But then we come to another layer of interpretive practice, which is this, that when I come to an interpretation and that interpretation conflicts with more foundational, more clear doctrines in the scriptures, I do not allow my foundational doctrine to be compromised by some 
higher, less clear doctrine. Rather, I look for another alternative to that higher, less clear doctrine. And if there is no alternative, if I search all of the scriptures and I can find no other reason to think that the sons of God are anything other than angels, well, then I need to start rethinking some more foundational things because the Bible is true from beginning to end. It is consistent. There are no uh, um, uh, contradictions in it. And so I need to do that. But if I can find another solution that is biblically consistent, well then, if it allows me to maintain the clearer, more foundational doctrines and keep them intact, that's where I am, have a tendency to go as a, as a part of good foundational biblical interpretation. Now, as we expand then, so within the, the Old Testament, if we look at just sons of God, we find it only in Jude, or Job, excuse me, and we find it mean angelic beings. Well, this is actually not a lot of evidence. One book, and that book being a book of poetry, right? It, it is a, a kind of a narrative poetry, but it's a poetry nonetheless. And we know then that as we expand that we do find the phrase sons of God used in other places in the scriptures, don't we? As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the phrase sons of God is quite regularly used to describe born-again believers. And we are not spirit-man hybrids in the sense of uh, of a procreation between a spiritual being and a human being. And yet six times in the New Testament, the Bible calls those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior the sons of God. And if you expand it beyond just the sons of God to, say, the children of God, we have another nine times in the New Testament where believers are called the children of God. We also have Adam, who is called in the genealogy in Luke, the son of God. Though Adam was certainly not an angel-man hybrid, yet he is called the Son of God. And so we have these other, way, these other times where the Son of God is used, and it is not speaking of angels. Angels hold a unique position, and the followers of Jesus Christ hold a unique position. And the concept of the sons of God being one who is created in the out, out of God, the one who is created as unto a purpose for God. Angels were created as sons of God, those who were a first creation of God unto a purpose. Adam was created as a son of God. He was a first creation of God unto a purpose. And you know what? Those who are followers of, of the way, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, are also a first creation of God. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things are become new. We are the sons of God because we have been made spiritually a first creation of God by placing our faith in God. Well, we know from Galatians that going all the way back to the beginning, salvation has always been by grace through faith. And uh, Paul traces this back to Abraham, saying that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was not because Abraham had, had special DNA. It was not because Abraham was of a special family. It was because Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, it was counted unto him for righteousness. So we know that this idea that there has been a setting aside of those who are gods, those who are of the seed of the kingdom of God, has been happening from the beginning. As a matter of fact, that's what we see going all the way back to Seth, right? Uh, Eve says, God has given us another seed in place of Abel, whom Cain slew. So it is entirely consistent 
consistent with the word of God for us to say that those who have chosen to call upon the name of the Lord, those who walked with God are those who become, who are, who are declared righteous, who are thus justified by the Lord. And because they have been declared righteous, they are a first creation of God, thus fitting into the category of a son of God. And so do we have to believe that sons of God are angels? We do not. Well, then who would they be? Those who called upon the name of the Lord would be the line of Seth, right? The line that called upon the Lord, the line that walked with God. And so if this is possible, and I think biblically it is, the sons of God being the godly line of Seth, well, then who would the daughters of men be? Well, the men multiplied upon the earth. The daughters were born unto them, and the sons of God looked at the daughters of men. Well, if we're contrasting the sons of God with the daughters of men, and the sons of God are those who are a first creation of God, thus being the line of Seth, those who had chosen to accept um, the, the, the word of the Lord, and so follow Christ, follow, follow God. Of course, Christ wouldn't have been around in person yet, but follow the word of God. Well, then the daughters of men would have been everyone else. The other lines, Cain's line, the line of those who had chosen not to follow the Lord, not to call upon the name of, of the Lord. The, the daughters of those who have their portion in this life. And so within the scenario then, those of, of, of Seth's line, those of the, the line of godly heritage, those of the line of those who called upon the name of the Lord saw the daughters of those who had chosen not to call upon the name of the Lord, looked at them and said, they are fair. We want to marry ourselves to them. And they did so. And in doing so, this created a compromise. The godly heritage of Seth's line became compromised by these men taking unbelieving wives. Wives who had no interest. We've been studying for some time now in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, we see a man named Ahab who took unto himself a wife named Jezebel. And the Bible says that Jezebel caused Ahab to do all manner of evil against the Lord. And this is the exact reason why God, when he warned the kings of Israel and Judah, he said, do not take unto you, uh, do, do not make marriages with the kings of other lands, lest they, the, the, your wives turn your hearts away from the Lord. And this is a very common warning within the Old and New Testament that the followers of God be careful not to form entangling relationships with unbelievers. In fact, Paul would warn about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So here we find a general principle, that when a follower of God yokes himself to an unbeliever, 
forms an entangling relationship with an unbeliever. There is an inherent lack of fellowship between those two, lack of common direction that will, at the very least, produce an incompatibility of intent and direction. But the warning is much more stern than just the danger of, say, not succeeding in an endeavor because two people are walking in different directions, though they're partnered. The danger is that of compromise, that we would fail or fall, we would fall, fail to be clean in the eyes of the Lord because we have allowed someone else to come in with their ideas, their priorities that strip from us a single-mindedness or a focus upon the things of God. As we've said before, and this is one of those phrases that I use semi-regularly, when the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. If I take a clean rag and I throw it into a whole box of dirty rags, say, wow, those are really dirty rags. I want to clean those rags. So I take a clean rag and I throw it into the box of dirty rags. I'm not going to come down the next day and find a whole box of clean rags. I'm going to find out, I'm going to find that that dirty, that, 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 that once clean rag is now a dirty rag because it has been put into a box of dirty rags. And so when we yoke ourselves to the unclean, there is a propensity for us to be drawn into uncleanness. So we regard the interpretive possibility that what is being referenced here is not angels with women, but the sons of Seth going to, as it were, the women of Cain. Of course, those would not have been the only people. Uh, Cain's line is not the only other line, but the sons of Seth, that line, that godly line, the line that had chosen to go that route uh, among the other lines that had, had not chosen to call upon the name of the Lord, that had their portion in that life. Jesus states specifically, with Matthew 22, verse 30, that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And this is also a good indicator to us that it's quite possible, even if we said angels procreated, this says that they took unto them as wives, right? That they actually married them. They didn't just procreate with them. Jesus says that that's not how it works. Now, this is not great proof that angels cannot reproduce because, of course, we have the Holy Ghost who... Uh, conceived with Mary to bring about Jesus. But there is some mystery to the spirit realm that we don't know about as it relates to that. But it certainly makes a cleaner interpretation to not impose something that has happened by record only one time in human history, and that being God himself conceiving with a virgin to work forward a prophetic promise to bring forth the very Son of God. So we establish the idea that the sons of God being angels is not biblically necessary. It really is not biblically necessary. And so that's the Bible part uh, as far as Genesis. Now let's talk about um, the other elements of it. The Nephilim controversy. And right away I want to emphasize that the scriptures do not directly connect the giants of those days with the children that the sons of God and the daughters of men produced. This is not a connection that we see in the text. There's actually a break here. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, the sons of, uh, of God came into the daughters of men and had these men of renown. There is no direct connection in the text between the giants of those days and the men of renown. Any connection that people make to that is a connection that they are forging. The text is not forging that. And so we, we see that, right? Also, we find that giants existed after the flood. The same word... Nephilim is used in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, of Goliath's family, the sons of Anak. We know of Goliath, right? Fought with David, 
David was the son of Anak. They were called in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, Nephilim. Now, once again, this is not a, a, a clear-cut argument. I can, I can probably tear that argument down myself in a couple of different ways. But it is there in the text that we say, well, these were Nephilim. And if the point, if God's point, if the whole point of the flood was that there was this group of giants called the Nephilim and they were tainted, they were tainted to their DNA, they were angel hybrids and they were wicked to the core, they were actually demonic beings and they were overthrowing humanity with their demonic DNA so that humanity was being absolutely tainted and so utterly destroyed. And then Noah was spared because Noah and his sons were presumably the only ones not tainted. And yet 1,500 years later, 1,500 years after the flood, we read in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, that there were Nephilim in the land. Then at the very least, the flood failed. It didn't get rid of the taint. It didn't get rid of the giants. So God killed the entire earth for nothing. Because they, somehow they got onto the ark. And that makes no sense. No sense at all. Second, and again, we'll touch on this in a different way next time. There's a huge theological disconnect between the idea that the Nephilim were some sort of hybrid abomination and what the text itself says. Notice this. Notice what God is grieved about in verses 5 and 6. He is grieved about the wickedness of men. Not the biological taint of men. Man's sin is the problem, not man's associations. So there's no reason to connect the Nephilim in Genesis 6 to some sort of hybrid abomination. The text does not require it. The presence of the Nephilim after the flood strongly uh, um, works against it. And there's one more thing I want to address before we finish up, and that's 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. In relation to 1 Peter, the text tells us that there were spirits in prison that were disobedient in the days of Noah. But there is nothing that connects those spirits directly to angelic beings. Every unbeliever is in a place of torment awaiting the judgment of the great day, including pre-flood unbelievers. It is just as reasonable to say that Jesus preached to those men and women who were in rebellion from the days of Enoch forward rather than some sort of fallen angel or demonic hybrid. And as a matter of fact, I think there's more reason. And the more reason for this, I think, is connected to 2 Peter and Jude. And I'll get there in just a moment. So 2 Peter and Jude. The angels that sinned and those that left their first estate, who left their own habitation. There are two different ideas here. First is... 2 Peter and Jude do not give any timetable for that. 1 Peter is where it's connected to the days of Noah. 2 Peter and Jude do not connect the angels that sinned to the days of Noah. It only connects it to early days. It doesn't, and it's just as easy thus for us to say that the angels that sinned, the angels that left the first estate, were those who in the days of Lucifer's fall decided to follow Lucifer into his rebellion as opposed to necessarily some sort of angelic hybrid idea. They, both interpretations fit 100% into 2 Peter and into Jude. But even if it were speaking of those in the days of Noah, remember that the word angel is the same word as the word messenger in the scriptures. That the word angel is simply messenger, and it is actually an interpretive decision as to whether or not a person uses the word messenger 
or angel. And we've talked about this before, say, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where there's the seven letters that are written to the angels of the churches. And we said, well, it's possible that those letters were written to angelic beings that were presiding over the churches, that there was a message for them. But it's just as possible that this speaking of some sort of human messenger, right? Some human angel, as it were. A human messenger who is, who, who is over the, the group there in, in each individual location, that church. And as they are over the church, there's a message for them that they need to disseminate to their people. Well, if we allow angel to mean messenger, which is actually what it means, it doesn't have to mean a spiritual being. Well, what are Second Peter and Jude warning about? False teachers. And interestingly enough, 1 Peter connects the spirits in prison in the days of Noah. And then we read in Jude a prophecy of Enoch that is connected to false teachers and that that God would judge them. So what if the angels that sinned and left their first estate were not necessarily spiritual beings, but human messengers, false teachers, the first round of false teachers, the first round of those who misrepresented the doctrines of God in order to bring people into error. That's what Second Peter 2 and Jude are themed. So it would not be outside of any sort of natural or proper interpretive method for us to say that those beings that sinned, uh, that are in chains of darkness until the day, are these false teachers, False, false messengers. The same ones that, that thus Enoch would have been contending with in the days of Lamech, going all the way to Noah's day. Entirely possible, interpretively. Okay. So, I've given you a lot of information. It hasn't been the most, um, perhaps, spiritually uplifting sermon. It's been more teaching us how to think through the Bible properly. It's important for believers. And so that's where I want to apply today. What I want to encourage you to do today is to think about the danger when somebody backfills biblical truth into the Bible, backfills truth, uh, their, their ideas of truth into the biblical truth of the Bible is what I mean by that. When they take human tradition, human myth, human reasoning, and they try to impose it on the Bible to bring about something, it is never a good idea to go to a human source a mythological source or a demonic source and use it to try to prove the veracity of the Word of God. Now, we know that the Word of God is true and we know that the Word of God is an historical book. And because the Word of God is historical in nature, we can certainly do something, say, like go to the book of Daniel and, and learn about Cyrus and learn about Xerxes and learn about Ahasuerus. And then we can go into history and say, wow, these people are really there and we can connect those ideas allowing history to fill in the gaps where the Bible does not speak. But that's very different from us saying, well, there's something that the Bible does not speak to at all, or very, very little, but we're going to take a bunch of human ideas and we're going to pop them into the the scriptures and say that this is what the Bible's talking about. It's a very, very different idea. And we need to be careful about this because it is at best backward. But this is what a great number of teachers do. Not just surrounding issues such as the Nephilim, but about true doctrines as well. They will take ideas that make sense from a human perspective. We talked about this a few weeks ago with Reformed theology. 
and they will fill that, backfill that into the Word of God and wrap the Word of God around a human way of thinking. And so the call is this, that when you read the Word of God, allow the Word of God to speak for itself. Be careful uh, when, when people are calling you to use the, the methods, philosophies, uh, mythologies, and traditions of men to try to fill in what the Bible says. Allow the Word of God to speak for itself. And when we don't do that, this can lead to great confusion where we fall into the same trap that Jesus, was con- uh, that, that Jesus preached against concerning the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, where he said, In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We are not here to learn the commandments of men. We are not here to impose our thinking upon God. We are not here to judge the Bible. We are here to allow God to impose his thinking on us. We are here to let the Bible judge us. That's what we do with the Word of God. We read it as a child. We read it in that simplicity, in that clarity. We let the Bible speak for itself. And, of course, we allow the Spirit of God to be our teacher. So let us be careful, then. First, that we are not ignorant of or dismissive of the reality that the Bible is written in history. But also, second, to be careful that we are not backfilling human understanding, human tradition, human mythology, or theory into the Bible. And whether this be the Nephilim, or this is the theory of origin as it relates to uh, Darwinian evolution, or any other man-made system, when we backfill man's ideas into the Word of God, we impose human fallibility upon inspired and infallible Scripture. And we threaten thus to compromise the integrity of the Word of God. But we also condition our minds to think that humanity has something to add to God's word, which God himself did not see fit to give us. And this sets forward a principle which we want to avoid at all costs, a principle which will allow us to answer to any biblical conviction, that when we feel conviction, that when God is teaching, we say, well, yes, but, and then we can fill in any sort of man's reasoning or tradition to try to obscure what the word of God says. This is a formula for compromise and one that we need to avoid. And again, I think after next week, this will become a little more clear as to exactly why it is this can be such a danger. But may this be our warning as we go from here today. May we, in this day, though it was perhaps not uh, a a spiritually rich message in that sense, it was more uh, kind of academic and interpretive based, may it help us understand and relate ourselves properly to the Word of God and how it is that we're going to read and understand the Word of God so that we do not fall into the... (laughs) The, 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 the myriad of ways that we can be drawn astray from the clarity and the purpose and the sound doctrine of God's Word. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.